the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have the director for Headcount's Cannabis Voter Project, Sam Darkangelo, on the show. I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining me, Sam. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Really stoked to be here. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been noticing what the Cannabis Voter Project has been doing, and it's really, really good work. As we're getting into regulated cannabis, hopefully federal legalization soon, one of the things people get really frustrated about is voting, waiting for things to change, not really understanding how that all works and how they play such an important part of the process. I always think maybe we should have like a Stoner Civics 101 to really get people back in the swing of things. I'm trying, I'm trying. Yeah, well, thank you for your work. I just I just think it's it's really really awesome. But before we get into that, I always like to ask my guests, what was your first cannabis experience? Oh god, um, you know, I guess I experimented uh, a little bit as a teenager. You know, wouldn't recommend uh people do that, you know, developing brains and whatnot. Um, but yeah, God, can't even really remember the specifics, but, uh, yeah, sometime, sometime in high school. Yeah. Yeah. I, me too. Me too. And people always ask me, do you, does that mean you condone youth access to cannabis? But unless I always feel that unless it's something that's medically necessary, because it can do some great things around that therapeutically with your doctor helping you along the way. That's one thing. But young developing minds, we really have to be careful about access. And that's why when we're getting into the regulated market, it's it's actually a really good thing because even if you're a senior citizen, if you don't have your ID, you cannot get into those dispensaries. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it takes some of the allure away too. You know, when you're, when you're young and you're in high school, there's some kind of like cool factor that comes from uh, going around uh, the law and whatnot. But um, I think, you know, as cannabis becomes more normalized, um, that gets uh, a little bit dispelled too. And, uh, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's probably not the reason people should be should be trying cannabis. Oh, I know. Well, that's it. I mean, when you're young, a lot of us are precocious. Me, I was, oh, yeah. you know, but <laughs> that that's what we're seeing. Like when we're looking at the regulated market and a lot of people are really worried about youth access, but studies are showing that the more it's mainstream and your your mom and your dad or the adults in your life are doing it who you don't think are cool, it's not as much of a thing that you get curious about experimenting with. And the access is much more limited too. Yeah, all the studies that have come out over the past few years, um, I, most of them at least have, have shown reductions in, in youth use yeah. in states where this has been legalized. So that whole kind of sky is falling argument that was made uh, before we started to see re- legalization roll out, one of the most common you know, prohibitionist arguments was, oh, think of the children, think of the children. And you know, if anything, uh, there's less use after legalization. I think it's important to point that out. That's it. Um, and I, conversation is normalization. It's like um, last year I had Michael Steele on the podcast and we were talking and I said, you know, we don't we don't see child safe packaging on, you know, your dad's bourbon. Um, let's let's have some real conversations, because as we've seen, you know, some of us, some of us who are more precocious, I never landed in the ER, but I like to experiment with alcohol when I was younger, too. And I remember kids doing too much and ending up in the hospital, getting their stomach pump. And we aren't dealing with stuff like that with cannabis. So we really need to have some more critical thought and not be so frightened. And like I said, conversation is normalization. The more we talk about things, the more, you know, it becomes normalized and the less mystical it is. One of the questions when we had David Crosby on, the late David Crosby on the show, somebody asked, you know, David, what was, what would you say for teens using cannabis? And his answer was, tell them the truth. And I, then, mean, I think that's good in most things. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, get them to understand that their minds are precious and you really want to wait till you're an adult and we don't fully develop our brain. Well, hell, brain plasticity lasts throughout our lives, but those critical years especially when a lot of things can pop up for us as far as being neurodivergent, we really want to protect our brains. Yeah, absolutely. As long as you don't go too far in the uh, the other direction of demonizing uh, the whole thing either, you know, it's a... Uh, exactly. Yeah, it's an important issue to think about, but I'm glad that we're thinking about it in a level-headed way 
and not just um, in a purely prohibitionist mindset. That's it. And even going into that prohibitionist mindset, when I teach my classes on cannabis education, we all have endocannabinoid systems. We all create our own endogenous cannabinoids. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are able to consume phytocannabinoids. Some, most of us do really well with it, but we're walking chemistry experiments. And I always say, if it's not right for you, that's okay. We have to have those conversations about if something is doesn't work well for your body, it doesn't mean that it's off the menu for everybody else. Let's have those conversations. I like gluten. <laughs> it doesn't mean that everybody can have it, you know. Oh, no, that's a, that's a good point. I, uh, I'm a fan of gluten myself. There you go. So getting into what you do, how did you – how did you decide to get into working with Headcount, the Cannabis Voter Project, and why do you think that this is an important thing to be talking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, really goes back. Um, I got involved with Students for Sensible Drug Policy uh, when I was in college, SSDP. Great org. Uh, yeah, you know, I had a really interesting uh, introduction to SSDP. I grew up uh, in and around uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Right on. Uh, you know, the sort of specter of Hurricane Katrina really loomed large um, in my high school experience. And, you know, that that experience really kind of um, led to a sort of political awakening at a fairly young age, kind of started really examining systems, you know, why were we doing certain things and not other things that led to this kind of great tragedy, but was also sort of pervasive in a lot of different ways across this country. And the drug war was really one of them. You know, um, you grow up and there's this sort of, we talk about the prohibitionist mindset, it's just sort of taken for granted. Drugs are illegal, drugs are bad, you know, not just cannabis. But this drug war mentality um, is sort of taken for granted, um, especially, you know, when you're younger and you haven't really thought about too many things. And I was a senior in high school. Uh, I was attending a creative arts uh, high school in New Orleans, the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. Shout out. Uh, fantastic high school. And I was a film student there. Um, program was, was called Media Arts, but I studied film. And uh, I decided I wanted to make a documentary about cannabis prohibition. And my teachers were totally cool with that. Hell yeah, go make a documentary about cannabis prohibition. And the Drug Policy Alliance 2007 International Conference just happened to be in New Orleans like that week. So I sent them an email, said, hey, I'm a high school student working on a documentary about cannabis. This sounds like there's some people I'd want to interview, you know, at this event. Can I come out there? They said, yeah, I gave me and my friend um, two free passes. We, we went out there. Um, and it uh, honestly, it changed, changed my life. I was introduced to uh, drug policy reform as a movement, not just like this thing I would read about every once in a while kind of study, it was like, no, there's a whole movement here. There are people who are dedicating themselves to changing the paradigm about drugs, about, you know, thinking of this as a public health issue and not a criminal justice issue. And I, and I saw SSDP and I thought, well, this is just about the coolest thing I've ever seen. Uh, I'm going to be in college next year and I'm going to call these guys up and start one. And that's what I did. I went to uh, LSU, started an SSDP chapter there, transferred to the new school in New York, started an SSDP chapter there. Um, and it was actually through one of my, uh, the, one of the guys who worked at SSDP, John Perry, a uh, great dude. Um, he was very much involved in headcount. And he said, you know, hey, you're going to school in New York now. Like you should get involved with this group headcount as well. They're really cool. Um, going to all the shows for bands that you like uh, doing, you know, sort of on the ground activism, registering voters at concerts. And yeah, that does sound great. And so interned with them my senior year of, uh, of college and that just started my trajectory with them. Didn't end up working with them until a few years ago when I got brought on board for Cannabis Voter Project. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, SSDP really introduced me to the drug policy reform movement. Um, got me really involved in that. Cannabis wasn't the only thing. It was, you know, the drug war in general is what we were kind of taking a look at there. Yeah. Um, still, are, still a great group, SSDP, um, doing a lot of fantastic work. But um, I was a music journalist for a number of years and then ended up taking a position um, in comms at uh, Marijuana Policy Project. Uh, and that didn't last very long, but when I when I left MPP, uh, Andy Bernstein from Headcount you know, hit me up and said, hey, I've been ideating this, this cannabis approach to voter registration. Uh, why don't we bring you on uh, to do that? And so it's only really grown from there. Um, it was a small campaign. I was doing part-time while I was in grad school uh, for the first couple of years, but then after that, um, you know, I finished up my, my public policy degree at UT, Texas, and uh, just came on full time to, to really make this a, a full fledged campaign at a at headcount. It's been going great. That's awesome. Do you think that bringing cannabis into the mix with voting 
do you think that that captures the imaginations and minds of more people getting them civically engaged? I mean, absolutely. That's the entire idea, right? I mean, when you're working in this, this sort of voter registration space, this voter turnout space, especially when you're dealing with young people who, you know, tend to vote less than really any other demographic, um, there's this kind of, you know, widespread feeling that voting doesn't matter. What has voting ever done? What can, what can voting change? And cannabis, um, you know, aside from being largely supported cannabis reform by young people, is actually a pretty great issue for illustrating uh, how voting really can impact your life in a pretty direct way. I mean, it's very easy to say, oh, you think voting doesn't matter? Well, look at Colorado, look at Washington, look at, just list the states that have, that have changed their vote, their laws, reformed their laws, people are out of jail, there's a flourishing industry. You're not, you know, buying your cannabis on the black market anymore, walking into a dispensary, buying a regulated product. So many, you know, myriad benefits uh, associated with legalization. Um, and it really makes that argument in a very direct way. It's very one-to-one, -one. you know, you don't have to go through a lot of steps here. It's like people voted, these cannabis laws changed. Is that not good? And actually, hey, you know, it starts with cannabis. I, I like to say that cannabis can be a gateway issue yeah. uh, for getting excited about participating in the political politics because it really, it, it, it applies to all sorts of issues. You know, voting is how you change really, really any laws here. And so, yeah, I mean, cannabis, um, you know, great way to illustrate that point to an apathetic young person, uh, especially one who is supportive of cannabis uh, reform of which, you know, most young folks are. Right, right. And I mean, it's not just our youth that are apathetic about voting and, and yeah. that nothing works. I mean, I, I remember here in California when, you know, we first had the regulated market and prices went up. Everything was not as accessible as it was before. And we had a lot of people who were really upset, upset about the packaging, except upset about the availability, upset about the overtaxation. And this was when I still worked in a dispensary. And they'd be like, you know, the companies and you and your, you know, your store. And then you have to stop them and say, wait a minute. We didn't, we didn't bake the cake. <laughs> There's a lot that goes into this. And if you don't like the way things are going with pricing, with availability, with standards, you have a voice. And people forget that. They forget that not only can they vote, but they can write or contact these policymakers that depend on their votes to keep their jobs and have that conversation. They have more power than they than they know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's why you'll see with Cannabis Voter Project, we, we really lean into voting, obviously, as yeah. the primary action we want folks to take. But the secondary action is always just that. It's making your voice heard uh, in some way, reaching out to your lawmakers, either by emailing them, calling them. Uh, these things are important. Politicians do respond to this kind of stuff uh, if it happens enough. Um, and I think it's a great point that you just illustrate, you know, California, right, passed legalization 2016. And yeah. uh, there's still obviously a lot of unresolved issues there. Uh, this isn't something that stops the second that a ballot initiative passes in a legal state. Every state, really, uh, where legalization has been implemented has various, you know, what we could call unresolved issues, um, things that people still don't agree with, threads that haven't been fully pulled. Um, and, and this process doesn't stop. And so it's important to remind people that, you know, this doesn't end the second that you pass that, you know, what the headlines will call legalization bill. Um, there's all sorts of things uh, that need to be sorted out. You know, you mentioned taxes and regulations. There's things, um, you know, consumption access, whether it be lounges, delivery, opt-outs in different counties, things like that. Uh, how is the expungement process going to work? Is it going to be automatic? Do you have to apply? You know, what are the sort of criteria that need to be met? These things uh, have very real differences. What sort of social equity licensing structure is, is there going to be? All of this stuff, um, you know, some of this will be sorted out in the initial bills, but most of it is still on the table and unresolved uh, in most states after um, legalization happens. And so that's something we really like to drive home uh, to people. You could live in a legal state. doesn't mean that there aren't cannabis issues uh, that you should be getting loud about. Right, right. Don't be defeated. Get active. Absolutely. And, you know, when we're talking about, you know, letting our voices be heard, getting civically engaged, I think a lot of people, when they first think about cannabis, because of the stereotypes, they always mm -hmm. think it's a liberal issue, but it's very bipartisan. It's, it's like uh, Michael Steele, when he was on the podcast, he's like, you'd be surprised at how many people on my side of the aisle use cannabis. He's like, a lot of Republicans like it. They just don't talk about it. But one thing that I noticed, too, was talking to friends of mine who've been cannabis activists since like the late 60s, early 70s, that in the 80s, 
the Republicans were actually, there were pockets of the Republican Party that were much more pro-cannabis, much more towards legalization than the Democrats. So we can't look at it as a partisan thing. It's something that takes both sides of the aisle and, you know, your other parties, like your independents, your green parties, your libertarians. We have a lot of libertarians in cannabis. And it really is about getting things done rather than what party you support. Yeah, I think, you know, we like to talk about cannabis as a nonpartisan issue uh, a lot. And there's actually a poll that came out recently, and a few polls have shown this, um, that while a pretty sizable majority of Americans uh, want to legalize cannabis, you even now have slim majorities of Republican voters who want to legalize cannabis at the national level. Um, and I believe there was one uh, from Data for Progress that actually showed a very, very narrow majority of Republicans actually supporting um, certain social equity provisions, like community reinvestment funds for tax dollars uh, to go to um cannabis tax dollars to go to communities that have been, you know, disproportionately impact, impacted by cannabis prohibition. So that was really interesting. Um, it's definitely, you know, you see it's like, it'll be like 75% of Democrats, 51% of Republicans, 60 something percent of independents. Um, so there's definitely nonpartisan uh, support when you're talking about uh, the voters themselves. When you actually get into, you know, the politicians, um, especially if you're looking at Congress, it is pretty overwhelmingly on the side of the Democrats in terms of where the actual support uh, for robust cannabis reforms is coming from. But there are a lot of pretty vocal voices on the Republican side uh, as well that are making the case uh, for legalization. And, you know, when you really get into it, sometimes the debates become the how, not the if. Um, not, you know, do we legalize, but what does legal, what kind of shape does legalization actually take? And I think you start to see partisan lines uh, even more there um, when you're getting into the how uh, question. But um, yeah, no, it's definitely an issue that resonates uh, with with voters much more than resonates with politicians. And that sort of discrepancy um, is really interesting to us, right? When you've got polls that show 65, 70% of Americans are supporting legalization, and then you're going to look at the House of Representatives or the Senate and seeing either narrow majorities or under less than majorities in the case of the Senate uh, supporting legalization really kind of creates this disconnect between what politicians are saying and what voters want. And that's why it's so important for people to make uh, their voices heard because you, know, you mentioned the stereotype uh, of cannabis a lot of politicians might have this idea that cannabis legalization is broadly supported, but there is still that stigma that views it as a, as a sort of unserious issue, right? Yeah. Like, okay, they might say that they support this, but this isn't something that's actually going to move the needle uh, in any way. That's how it's perceived. And that's why it's really crucial for people in the cannabis community to let their elected officials know, you know, not only that, you know, they support legalization, but it's actually a very important issue to them. It's something that they're, you know, making up, they're sort of voting, they're sort of deciding their voting habits uh, around and, um, that's what gets politicians oftentimes to change their, their positions is realizing that this is something voters are, are demanding. Exactly. Um, so really you know, that, that people do that and that they actually show up. If yeah. we're going to see polls saying that, you know, oh, 80% of, you know, millennials or something support legalizing cannabis. Well, if millennials or Gen Z aren't turning up to vote, eh, you know, maybe this isn't the issue we want to, you know, turn around on if I'm a politician. So it's really crucial to, you know, just show up in every election, let people know that your generation is voting. Um, so that they, you know, they stake out their positions accordingly. Yes, absolutely. And I feel like sometimes policy can be poo-pooed almost. Some of the decisions that have been made when we have passed regulated markets in different states, some of the laws I feel like are made because they don't really understand their constituents and they don't understand who's a cannabis user. They have still have this outdated preconceived notion of who uses cannabis. And if you spent an afternoon in a dispensary waiting area, you see people of all walks of life. And that's when I tell people this is your chance to get a hold of these policymakers and say, you know, I am a participating member of society. I pay taxes, I use cannabis, and I vote. That's why whenever I go into my meetings, I'm in a suit and heels. And I love the fact that people think that I don't use cannabis because I look so straight when I go into these meetings because it's it's what gets people listening. And it's not that me and my colleague in the, with the hemp necklace aren't just as intelligent and passionate and active. It's the perception. And, and that sucks. But that's what we've got. And so we need to let these people know that people of all walks of life are using it. They're benefiting from it. And not only that, but it's not a cash cow panacea that's going to solve everything. Although it can, if we want to look at it from the standpoint of your everyday person, it can create generational wealth. 
It can get people interested, young people interested in things like biochemistry and supply chain management. I mean, whoever thought supply chain management could sound sexy for somebody? (laughs) These are like things that we need to be talking about. Oh, man. Uh, Well, you know, supply chain management, that's what makes the world go around. Right? (laughs) As we've learned the past three years. (laughs) We should be demystifying supply chain. That's true. Um, (laughs) No. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, and and that's, you know, that's something that's really important is a lot of times these these ballot initiatives that'll be passed will, you know, at a bird's eye view, they'll legalize cannabis. They might even have expungement provisions. They might even have a tax rate or something in there. But the, the regulations, the really nitty gritty is often worked out by the legislators. Uh, after the fact. And even when you see sort of overwhelming, you know, passage of a a cannabis legalization initiative, you still have this sort of idea among a lot of politicians that this is something that we kind of need to keep the screws tight on. And so they're just sort of often throwing in regulations that sound strong or seem strong on the surface, but actually serve no real uh, public interest. And uh, I think that's a pretty common thing that you've seen across the board. But it's been interesting to watch this kind of happen state by state. You know, we're no longer in these wild west states sort of Wild West stage anymore. The laboratories of democracy, as a brand I sort of said, have been at work. And so we kind of have an idea of things that work and things that don't. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're actually starting to see, you know, regulatory systems that are a little more thought out uh, now uh, with sort of the legislative past cannabis um, legalization sort of stuff in on the East Coast and was happening, you know, on the West Coast in the early days where it was kind of like, you know, we're just kind of figuring this out. So a lot of what you described in California, I think there's a broad sort of understanding that California's regulatory system is not right. <laughs> you know, people might disagree on the specifics of that, but there's a general understanding from a lot of different sides that like this isn't working, not for everybody or for anyone, really. Um, and so, you know, it's important to, for people to to really get into the to the weeds there, so to speak. And uh, you know, policy is administrative policy is, is very complex. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what we try to do at the Cannabis Voter Project is sort of demystify these things. I used that word earlier, but you know, the legislative process can seem really opaque to a lot of lay people. Absolutely. And so it's good, you know, sometimes if, if you're a person who not particularly politically active, but you care about cannabis, you're watching a cannabis legalization bill move through Congress, move through your state legislature. This can sometimes be your sort of first experience with the legislative mm-hmm. process, the committee process, how things sort of move through um, a bicameral legislature. And it can be a pretty educational experience. Um, and we try to, you know, use those sort of teachable moments at the Cannabis Voter Project, use these kinds of things that are happening uh, with federal legislation to kind of walk people through um, just how it all works. Because again, that has implications well beyond cannabis, and it's a good thing for people to understand. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the programs that you're doing, because I know that you're at a lot of music events, which is awesome, because people are relaxed, open, Mm -hmm. they're having a good time. They see your very important messaging. I would imagine that they're more open to having conversations than in a lot of different venues. But let's talk about that and some of the other things that you're doing outside of that, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, Headcount's real bread and butter has always been music festivals, concerts. I mean, that's what we do. We register people to vote uh, at concerts. In fact, one of the sort of impetuses for really uh, putting some resources into Cannabis Voter Project was noticing that when legalization was on the ballot in certain states, there was just generally more interest from people at concerts, music festivals in voter registration period uh, that had was sort of offering. People come up to the booth, oh, you know, we're in Michigan. Oh, uh, got to get this voter registration up to date. I just moved and I know that legalization's on the ballot here. Um, that kind of stuff, you know, we, we were seeing so much of it. And so we said, hey, we can speak to this uh, directly. And, and we really try to meet people where they are. Where, where are the cannabis consumers um, in large numbers and where they're receptive to conversations? And concerts, music festivals are always a good place for that. You don't necessarily have to be at a cannabis event. Uh, you know, a lot of people are obviously consuming cannabis at a music festival or or whatever. Um, and another spot is dispensaries. We try to offer tools to dispensaries, turnkey kind of tools, uh, so that they can do voter registration, voter education, help people reach out to their lawmakers, um, you know, in pretty simple ways, either in store or through their kind of uh, channels that they reach out to folks. Um, any dispensary folks uh, out there listening to this podcast, feel free to look me up, hit me up, talk about some of those turnkey uh, tools because we'd love to get that stuff going, um, you know, in the, in the retail location. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome because a lot of times these conversations are happening in the dispensaries and if they have it right there and at that moment, if they're fired up enough, 
it's good to have the tools to be able to do something about it on the spot. And when we're talking about concerts and things like that, who are some of the bands and the organizations that you've been partnering with that you've been really excited about? Um, you know, we've always had a really great relationship with Dead and Company. Uh, you know, they've always been fantastic. We go to a lot of their shows on their tours. I'm sure we'll be uh, at some of them this this summer as well. But the Outside Lands Music Festival this past summer was really cool. Um, in San Francisco, they have um an uh, area called Gla- Grasslands. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar? Yeah, Grasslands, you know, um, maybe they're doing that kind of thing at more music festivals now, but I know it was the first of its kind. It's a, you know, for those of you who don't know, it's a sort of on-site consumption lounge. They actually are able to legally sell cannabis at the festival at the music festival um in a sort of designated area called grasslands um and so it's yeah it's essentially an on-site consumption lounge um on-site kind of dispensary um really cool and we were there you know just doing our standard activation but with a very receptive audience because we're in this you know sort of cannabis land um so that was really cool as well um willie nelson's outlaw festival has been a great place uh, as well um we had uh, a number of folks in a uh a video that we did this past summer, Pusha T was one of the top line ones, really great rapper um, in one of our Cannabis in Common videos, sort of calling on his uh, fans to go and visit our website, cannabisincommon.org, where you can go and make, which is kind of a separate campaign uh, within Cannabis Voter Project. Um, but telling people to go visit that website, make your voice heard uh, about cannabis issues. That's so awesome. That was really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the Lettuce has always been a great touring partner for us uh, as well. Uh, we were on the road for all of their shows uh, a couple years ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we love working with musical artists, um, love working with dispensaries. Uh, gosh, who else are we kind of blanking out here? Oh, the National Cannabis Festival is always a great one uh, in D.C. Uh, yeah. Made out to that event. Um, Caroline Phillips, which is a really great job uh, putting that on. It's a um, they do do a policy summit as well. That's a lot of fun. I get to meet a lot of the people on the policy world in Congress. Uh, that's great as well. Um, yeah, that's a great group of folks. Absolutely everywhere. You know, every music festival in the country, basically. Uh, Cannabis yeah. and music go hand in hand. And I, with Grasslands, I think that was a really interesting case study too, because that was one of the first big festivals that had that. And every time, every year it happens from from a policy standpoint, because I, I've been on doing cannabis policy in San Francisco since I was co-chair of the legalization task force. And now we we just sunsetted the oversight committee seats for this past year and they're going to be getting new people on. But after Grasslands, we always sit down and talk about, you know, what happened? What what do we need to do now? What do we need to do to help promote safe public consumption? But also, how do we do this so that we don't create undue stress on the partners that are working on, especially the smaller brands? Because as we're dealing with mass extinction events in California, because we like to reinvent the wheel over here, policy-wise, apparently, <laughs> you know, we need to be really, really doing a lot more to support these small businesses. And as much as they like to participate in these events, it can be really really challenging for them financially. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You know, um, on our end, you know, Grasslands kind of is just another great way of illustrating that point I was talking about earlier. Someone yeah. talks to somebody in that Grasslands area, and they're like, oh, what has voting ever changed? Well, look around, man. You're in a music festival consumption site that can only exist in like three states that allow, they're allowing this kind of thing to happen right now. Like this is, this is what voting has changed. And well, you know, there's still problems with legalization. Okay, cool. Well, great. If you, if you still have, issues with how things have been implemented, here's some ways that you can go make your voice heard. Um, That's all the more reason for you to stay involved and stay active. It's a great way to have the conversation. Yeah, I mean, really, cannabis is a great conversation starter as an actual thing, you know, like cannabis itself. Um, But as an issue also, it's a great way to to reach a lot of people. What are some of the issues that you've been really focusing on now outside of voting that you think are important for people to be discussing? Yeah, I mean, you know, the election just wrapped up. Um, you know, I think we're going to start talking a little bit more about what I was just saying earlier, those issues that kind of come into play after mm-hmm. legalization, sort of consumer rights issues, um, things that kind of are left unresolved uh, after, you know, legal. And you've got 21 states now that have legalized. So if we want to reach people in places where cannabis is legalized, covers about half the population now. And we, we got to start going a lot more on the subjects that, you know, matter in those states. Um, but I think a really important one is the issue of, ex- of expungement and of pardons. 
you know, we saw uh, President Biden back in October uh, issue a call to governors. Uh, you know, he did his own sort of pardoning of federal possession charges. Um, but there was, you know, a big part of that was a call to governors to do the same at the state level uh, there. And you haven't really seen much movement actually happen in that regard. A few governors came out, said, oh, we're going to do some reviewing. We're going to look into some things. Um, but there's a lot more that can be done in, in that way. And so we want to start educating folks about what their governors are doing at the state level um, regarding this pardon issue. Now that there's been a call from the president uh, to do something about that, give them tools to make their voices heard uh, about sort of clemency and you know what kind of what kind of clemency powers do your governor even have? I mean, that's a big question. Governors aren't, the president has pretty clear clemency powers. Governors have different clemency powers in every single state. Uh, some can you know let anybody out. Some can only for certain things. Some need the approval of a, of a review board of some sort. And so again, it's all about demystifying the process. We want to break it down. Here's what your governor can do. Here's what they are doing. Here's how you can make your voice heard. Um, so I think that's a really great issue uh, for us to be going on in this kind of off election year, uh, so to speak. Although not totally an off year, Oklahoma is going to be voting on legalization um, in March. Uh, Ohio, very possible that that'll be on the ballot in November 2023. Um, and then, you know, you can still talk about legalization a lot. There's a number of states where legislative movement is going to be happening uh, the state legislative level over the next few months already is really places like Minnesota, Delaware, um, where legalization could happen this year. And there's a lot of opportunities to activate uh, people around the legislative movement that's happening there. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see how it's done in every state. When we first started out with this, and I would be lecturing in other states and working with, you know, governments that were considering legalization or, or putting together their programs. The one thing I noticed back then was that a lot of the policy wasn't necessarily based on fact. They weren't necessarily looking to other states to see the mistakes that they made. And it was a, a lot of it was about state culture, which is extraordinarily strong and stigma. Oh, yeah. that's, that, that's something that I think, you know, when you watch these sort of state legislative battles, it really is always interesting how the sort of peculiarities of each state sort of come to the fore yeah. uh, and it's like oh what's going on here it's like oh well this guy is the rural this and i'm making the deal with oh okay it's like you know i think it can get a little a little crazy i mean here i'm in texas right so i i live in austin texas and uh texas is is really fascinating um because texas i mean in, in a kind of bad way um the texas house has passed decriminalization bills on two occasions uh here in texas um but they've not gone to the senate to even have a vote and the reason for that is because Texas has not arguably really, almost certainly the most powerful lieutenant governor of any state in the country. The lieutenant governor in Texas has the power to set the agenda in the Senate. So the Texas lieutenant governor has effectively veto power on anything coming out of the House. Uh, and we've, you know, for the last few terms, last few cycles, had a very anti-cannabis uh, lieutenant governor here in Texas, Dan Patrick. And he has kept anything really from moving forward um, you know, on the decrim side uh, in Texas. And he's also kind of forced the medical, Texas has an extremely weak medical cannabis program. You can hardly even really call it uh, that. But there's an appetite at the state legislature to pass more, um, pass a more robust medical program. It's just, you know, kind of pre-struck down by Dan Patrick, who says, you know, don't even try to pass that bill or else I won't let it go to the Senate. And so you've got legislators in the House passing sort of pre-compromising and are just putting forth, you know, very paltry bills. Um, because that's all that he sort of indicated that he'll allow uh, to get to the next stage of the legislative process. Um, and so that's something that really only can happen in Texas. Um, but it's something that not a lot of people really know about or understand. And so it's, again, a great- I didn't moment. know that. You know that the lieutenant governor in Texas is more powerful than the lieutenant governor position um, than basically any other state, in some ways more powerful than the governor himself um, because of the power that he you know, has over the, the legislative process. Wow. Um, and there's a lot yeah. of people in Texas that would really like to have access to cannabis. I, oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I think it was 55, 60% over the last few polls have shown um, in Texas. And people think of Texas as like this, as a red state, as a conservative state. And, and in some respects, that's true. When you look at the issue of cannabis, you know, pretty clear cut majority uh, want to see those laws change. But because of, again, the peculiarities of our legislative system, our, our government set up here in Texas, um, you know, bigger, bolder things have not have not moved forward. Well, and that that also illustrates the importance of being civically involved in voting, because if you have a lieutenant governor that is going against the will of the people, you've got some issues. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of voters are frankly not going to pay attention to lieutenant governor's race just right off the bat. And so, um, 
you know, which brings, I guess, to another point that cannabis can really be used to sort of show people that their vote matters really all the time. Everybody, you know, presidential elections draw a lot of interest, midterm elections, you know, a little less interest, but still a good bit of interest. But there's all kinds of races in these off years, as we want to call them, really no off years, if you really want to get down to it. Right. Um, but local elections, you know, how many major cities in red states have passed, you know, decriminalization ordinances of, of various kinds, you know, might be the most that they can do, but it's something and it matters. And it's another reason to sort of stay on top of what your city council is doing. And a lot of people, again, not following what's happening at the city council level, not following what's happening at the state legislative level. I mean, most people in this country couldn't tell you who their state legislators are. And so, you know, bringing in that issue of cannabis is a great way to really start that conversation. Like, do you know where your state legislator stands? Oh, you don't even know who they are. Okay, well, here's who they are and here's where they stand. Um, and now you're now you're getting somewhere. Yeah, that's it. And as you were talking about this, I was just thinking about different states. And I was thinking about Oklahoma in particular. Mm. Oklahoma, not really a blue state. No. Um, I was doing some work there the other year and really looking at like so many people from California were going to Oklahoma because they're like, I can do my business. I can make money. There aren't as many regulations. They're... <laughs> They're giving away infused slushies at the dispensaries. <laughs> and I went and it was like, it was a very interesting study in almost a libertarian approach yeah. to cannabis. And going down in Oklahoma City, you saw all these storefronts. A, there was a lot of cannabis presence, but there were a lot of vacant storefronts that were had been dispensaries. And so it was a really interesting way of looking at if we did something like a a a free market almost like sink or swim let's see what happens but then they've started reining it in a little bit more and and I think you have to I mean you do it's it gets a little crazy after a while but it's really it's great to see like what happens if you approach it through a certain lens. And there are takeaways from that that are really positive. And then there are things that you're like, okay, maybe we won't do that. And I love that. I love being able to see what other states do. Although sometimes I'm like, why did you do, did you not see over there what they did with that? That that was a waste of time and money for you. Someone made that mistake already. But with with Oklahoma, I think it was a whole different thing. It was like, oh, this is kind of like, we kind of, of it, yeah, we wondered what would happen if they just let us do whatever we want to do. Well, look at Oklahoma. <laughs> that was really fascinating. Yeah, I, I it's still the case, but um, a fact that you saw, you know, bring up at parties and things all the time was uh, what state, you know, has the most dispensaries of any state in the country. And the answer is Oklahoma, not per capita, raw number. Uh, Oklahoma has more dispensary storefronts than than, than California does. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I know that that's often in flux and I'm not sure that that's the case anymore, but I still, I think it is um, that Oklahoma has the most dispensaries and it's because of this sort of free market approach uh, that you're describing. Um, but, you know, er earlier you were talking about, you know, how these regulations, these, these rules, the administrative laws aren't written by people who know really anything about this. You've got regulations that are oftentimes sort of cumbersome for the sake of being cumbersome because, you know, there's a sort of perception that cannabis, drug, bad, um, needs to you know you need to keep a tight lid on it and you're just sort of sometimes passing in different states regulations um to sort of feed into that perception that you're doing something about that more than to actually you know fill any any real need and um i, I do think you've seen you know in some of the states that have legalized more recently and that are in the process you you are seeing some sort of earnest attempts to study what's happened in other states and see you know where we can sort of figure out what went wrong and how we can do things uh better but certainly not enough um, and that is kind of a shame. Um, you, you would hope that, um, you know, you wouldn't be repeating this whole cumbersome regulations for the sake of cumbersome regulations thing, every single state, um, that you'd, you'd see, you know, what's working here, what's, what's not working there. Um, but I do think, you know, some of the states that were, so the, were the first to legalize almost kind of, you know, it was great. They, they beat the, everyone else to the punch, but they also were kind of the first to experiment, um, and, and in a lot of ways kind of have a lot of, a lot of catching up to do. Uh, in other areas, they're not necessarily legalization itself. It's like being a firstborn child. <laughs> right, your parents are just kind of figuring out, like, oh, why did my little brother get to do more things earlier? Like, well, you know, we we got it together by the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I may true. I've had a personal experience with that. Oh, uh, I as as the eldest, I do. I was always like, it's not yeah, fair, and yeah. they're like, well, we were we were really nervous with you, so we like, and, you know. So. <laughs> 
but we were a good place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's I I find it interesting. I find it interesting when we're looking at, you know, gathering everybody to support it or not. It's like it, almost the sin taxes that are that are brought up, like the way that it's overtaxed. Or even in California, I don't know if you know this, but some of the taxes actually go to nonprofits that are actively working against cannabis. Oh, wow. you know, I wasn't. I know in some states they go to the police um, in, in different ways. They do here too. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I think you know, I, I do think you're going to start to see more of that kind of thing too as we move to sort of the redder states uh, legalizing in the future. I think that that's going to be kind of the bargain that's going to need to be struck uh, in a lot of states is very large portions of the tax revenue uh, going to law enforcement um, for a lot of different reasons. One is almost like buying their, you know, sort of acquiescence to the whole thing. Well, you know, <laughs> that that's a big part of it is getting the sheriffs to not show up at the legislative sessions and say that this is going to make the sky fall. Right. Um, but um, yeah, that's, you know, that is what it is. Um, if we could have nonprofits though, that's. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a nonprofit that shows up at all my meetings that's vehemently against cannabis and and our industry is supporting them through our taxes. So it's a it's a really interesting thing because it would be I I often wonder, you know, there are people who are actively against it, but then there are other people that I'm like, all right, is it the money? Like wh- what you see the change if you can be against it let's have some conversations maybe about the things that matter like controls to keep around public safety there's enough that we can talk about and engage critical thought around public safety rather than scaring people and and creating misinformation that you're kind of getting rewarded for because you're collecting this this you know funding through the taxation these are things that really concern me because we should be putting that money towards other things like, you know, real education. Because I'd hate to see like when I, I always tell people, you know, I love it when somebody has a successful experience, but that chocolate covered blueberry that helps you sleep might not be the same thing that works well for your friend. Let's talk about dosage. Let's talk about modes of use, why it's important to have lots of different ways to use it because everybody responds differently. Some people will do really well with sublinguals. Some people will like, you know, doing a traditional inhaling of cannabis, whether it's through vaporization or smoking a joint or a bowl. You know, some people will, you know, transdermals are where it's at for them because that's what they're using it for. But really like having more conversations about all the different ways, how the body works and how even though some people and most mammals work really well with cannabis, but not all of us can ingest it. And that's all right. Like I was saying earlier, like let's let's talk about the reality of it because we have two sides. We have people who are total prohibitionists and then... We have some of the, you know, some of my lovely colleagues that just, you know, especially during COVID, I was like, no, cannabis does not cure COVID people, oh, you know, yeah. or like yeah. I got into my work in cannabis because I'm a cancer survivor and getting introduced at events that Sarah cured her cancer with cannabis. Well, no, I didn't. I'm the child of a cancer researcher. Did it help me eat? Did it help me not have, have to use other pharmaceuticals that would have had bad side effects? Absolutely. May it somehow have helped my cancer experience in getting well again in other ways that I don't know about and science still needs to do research on? That is quite possible. But I went through chemo and I went through surgery and that is why I'm alive today. Let's talk about that because when we have those moments where people say that it's either all good or it's all bad, that blows up in our face because nothing in life is like that. Nothing. Right. And it also adds, it it allows that kind of unseriousness of the issue to be felt by certain people. If you've got, you know, somebody comes into the, you know, the legislative, the city council meeting saying, you know, cannabis cures all ailments. It's like, okay, well, you know, like it might cure more than we're currently using it for, but, right. or it might assist, help in various ways, not cure necessarily, but, you know. Um, Therapeutically used. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, when somebody starts saying, you know, you're going to solve all your issues with anything, that's kind of a red flag. <laughs> Just rub some oil on it. It'll be all good. Yeah. You don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> that's it 
Well, and, and I think like when we're looking at that too, we have to also look at like there's a lot of chicken or the egg stuff because when we are looking at federal legalization, and I know like when we were looking at you know the Moore Act, a safe banking, and I know like Senator Booker was saying that he wasn't going to consider anything with banking until we looked at social equity, but it really goes hand in hand because as we know traditionally, you know, especially like people of color have not had really good experiences with banking, with funding. So they need it too. This is all about the success of these programs, being able to have all of these resources available for the people who have been the most impacted by prohibition, who should be the ones who are allowed to flourish and really level the playing field for them because they put themselves and their families at risk to create abundance. Well, I think that's kind of the, what he's saying in a lot of ways. You know, when you look at something like safe banking, I think the perception of, amongst a lot of folks in the Democratic Party was nothing wrong with safe banking. Right. Um, but if you're going to, if you have a chance to finally get something passed, uh, you know, it's not going to be federal legalization. We're not there yet uh, in the Senate. But if you're going to get something passed, like what are the sort of restorative justice sort of provisions we can add to this? What are the sort of social, like direct social equity provisions that we can add to this? Um, because if for no reason, you know, for no other reason, politically, it doesn't look great to, you know, pass a bill to have it seem like, oh, the banks got their bag in this whole cannabis reform thing. But, you know, what happened to people who really suffered under prohibition for, for many decades? What have they gotten? Um, and yeah, you can definitely make an argument that safe banking um, helps in some respects. Um, but it's like, if you've got this opportunity to get this over the line, like what can we attach to it? Um, that's really going to help in, in, a, in a direct sort of way. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was the calculus, you know, there with that one. Um, but ultimately, I think safe banking failed for um, other reasons. The Senate's just not there yet. Yeah, um, I, I think you're right. I've, I mean, I just, if, you know, spending time, like I, I'm on the equity subcommittee for California and just the tears and the frustration from people that are trying to make things work and all the money that they have to put into it before they can even break even is really really it's it's frustrating to watch and it it hurts my heart to see how many people are suffering through this who and also because of the issues with banking they've had to rely on lots of different ways to get investors which is a lot of footwork and really frustrating people you know getting investors from family friends or people companies that are predatory that take away you know percentages of ownerships and these are things that that's why I feel like it goes hand in hand in many ways. It's like, yes, a lot of people will benefit from banking opening up. But if we can do this together with the social equity program so that it makes the most impact for these people who are greatly impacted by their ability to do the work. And I I mean, when we're looking at just the social justice aspect. It is such a slap in the face that for 10 years I was selling cannabis, you know, working for a dispensary and people are still in jail for what I get a taxable income for every day. I mean, I think that's the greatest in, injustice, you know, frankly, in all of this yeah. um, is yeah, there are states where cannabis is legal and there's still people who are either in jail or are having, you know, their criminal records um, continue to have cannabis on their criminal records, keeps them from getting jobs, housing, education, all sorts of things. Um, and that's a kind of discrepancy that I think, you know, really, on, on the voter side of things really motivates uh, people. Like when, when I talk to folks, you know, uh, safe banking is a really interesting issue, but I, I do, you know, often tell people when I'm talking to people um, at the booth, when I'm talking to people at events, safe banking is not a thing that ever comes up amongst your sort of lay people, right? Like you're kind of, you're your average can member of the cannabis community. Um, I, I say, you know, rightly or wrongly, it's considered by a lot of people to be a cannabis industry issue more than a cannabis community issue. Yeah. Um, but expungement, you know, pardons, the fact that there are people still uh, in cover with criminal records. I mean, that's the thing other than legalization itself. That's what people want to talk about. How do we get people out of jail? How do we get people's records cleaned? Um, that's that's the thing that people want to talk about. And so um, I think that's really key. You know, one of the interesting things that I saw, and it's kind of a bit of a tangent here. Um, I love tangents. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, this is something I want to bring up because I thought it was really fascinating. Um, if you looked at the initiatives that were on the ballot in 2022, um, you had Maryland, Missouri that passed, and then you had Arkansas, North Dakota, and South Dakota uh, that did not pass. Now, of those five, 
Uh, Maryland and Missouri were the only two uh, that included any kind of provisions for expungement. Um, and those are the two that passed. And if you look at some of the things that were said about the initiatives in places like Arkansas, it, I, it, I think, worked against uh, the legalization initiative in that state to not have restorative justice provisions included in the actual initiative itself. If you go back to 2012, when you see what's happening in Colorado and Washington, they don't really include any kind of expungement provisions. Um, but that's because this is uncharted territory, right? We just want to get this over the finish line. Expungement, we don't know what kind of a cell expungement is yet. So we don't want to, you know, we know where people stand on legalization. But if you throw expungement in there, maybe it's a tougher cell. Maybe that'll be the thing that gets us not over the finish line. Um, but I think you, you can't say that anymore. I think if you look at things today, there aren't that many people. I can't imagine the voter out there who wants to see cannabis legalized, but doesn't want to see people uh, have their rights restored, uh, people put out of jail, people have their records expunged, who did something that's now legal. I, that, that voter probably exists somewhere. Maybe there's a half dozen of them across the country, but they're not, they're not very common. But what there is, is a voter who says, I'm supportive of cannabis legalization, but I'm looking at this cannabis legalization initiative and the way it's written, it looks like it's going to allow me to purchase weed. It's going to allow people who already are connected to get wealthy selling weed, but it's not gonna do anything for the people or do much for the folks who were harmed by prohibition for decades. Um, and because of that, I'm actually gonna withhold my vote. And I think that there's more of those voters than there are the voters who are scared away by something like expungement provisions. And, um, you know, I, I guess maybe it's a little roundabout way of getting there. I don't know if I've uh, gotten off track here, but um, I think you're right on track. Keep yeah, going. The point is that it's to the benefit of any legalization campaign to go very hard in the paint for restorative justice, uh, because it's something that your average cannabis member of the cannabis community really, really cares about. Um, and it honestly is a little suspect if that kind of stuff is not included um, in your initiative or in your push uh, for legalization. So. Um, you know, I just want to point that out, you know, people pushing those legalization initiatives, there were five last year, two of them passed, and those two, I mean, it's complicated, there's a lot of reasons, but the two that passed had strong or relatively strong uh, restorative justice provisions, expungement provisions, and uh, the three that did not pass did not have uh, any such provisions. So something to think about. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, too, with normalization, and as we're seeing more regulated markets, some of the nonprofits that before may have thought it was an important thing but didn't want to get involved because of mm -hmm. the legal status are starting to get more involved. And prior to being in cannabis, I worked in civil rights and I worked for one of the oldest civil rights organizations, actually the oldest on the West Coast Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of the San Francisco Bay Area. And they have a program called Legal Services for Entrepreneurs. And when I was working there, we wouldn't have touched cannabis with a 10-foot pole. Mm -hmm. But I reached out to them because I love, I love my old colleagues. They're wonderful. They do great work. And I was asking them, the Legal Services for Entrepreneurs program, where they get a lot of attorneys from big firms offering pro bono help for people to start their businesses. Well, this isn't an expungement thing. It is a civil rights issue. And I, they were saying that they were having more pro bono attorneys starting to approach them, asking them if they had equity applicants that could use their help. And I think that that's a beautiful thing because we can also look at that around expungement and creating more programs like Golden Gate University in San Francisco has had a lot of expungement program work that they've been doing and really getting these people who believe in this and have the tools to do it. And they don't have any skin in the game. They're just about getting people up and moving and, you know, just empowered and able to get on with their lives. Because before, when we were putting a lot of the foundation, we had people who were offering to help and some of them had the best of intentions. But a lot of it had to do with like cost. And now we have we have more help. We have more people that want to seat at the table to be able to help without complicating things. And we need to start utilizing them more. Yeah, I mean, that's great. You know, yeah, I just just from the voters angle, from the voting angle, I mean, there's a whole lot of voters who I wouldn't even call cannabis voters. These aren't people who care about yeah. cannabis, particularly as an issue at all, but they certainly care about civil rights yeah. and expungement as it relates to cannabis is something that's more important to them than really any other aspect of the issue. Um, and it's just something that I think should really never be ignored by anybody in this space. Uh, getting getting people out of jail, getting people's records cleared. That is what motivates people to vote. It's what gets people excited. Um, you know, if you're a politician, you shouldn't just be talking about legalization. You need to be talking about legalization and restorative justice um, all the time, because that's that's what motivates your average cannabis voter or even your your sort of civil rights voter, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, 
safe banking, a lot of these sort of things, I mean, they're, they're obviously very important, but they're not the things that um, really, but when I saw what happened with safe banking, there were so many people, oh, you know, can you believe that they're dropping the ball around safe banking? And it was like, you know, it doesn't really surprise me that much. I mean, I would love to see safe banking pass, but they're not making it a priority because, you know, outside of like people involved directly in the cannabis industry, it's really not a priority um, for many people. It just isn't, you know, uh, for many voters, you know, they might see a headline that says, you know, cannabis banking thing sorted out by Congress. Oh, that sounds nice. But yeah. it's not the thing that's going to get them to call their representative. It's not the thing that's going to get them to consider uh, who they're going to vote for in this or that primary or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, but restorative justice is, expungement is, um, legalization, broadly speaking, is. Um, so we'll see how things go. I, you know, the Senate, this this, this this, new Senate is arguably less cannabis friendly than the last one. Um, so we'll see how, not the Senate, excuse me, the House. The House, the House. is certainly uh, less cannabis friendly. You know, we saw the Morak pass twice, uh, both in 2020, excuse me, was it, was it 2020 and then 20, again in 2022? So the Morak passed. Um, I don't know if the Moore Act could pass uh, in the in the current uh, Congress. Um, maybe some kind of legalization bill that you know included less social equity, included less restorative justice. That might be able to get uh, through a kind of Republican-held Congress because that is a bit of a dividing line. When you look even among the Republicans who tend to support legalization, there is less enthusiasm for the sort of social equity side of things, um, and so that that's kind of a dividing line uh, there. But yeah, I mean, it's gonna be really interesting to see how things go uh, in this next Congress. You know, you arguably did have your kind of last chance for two years to really get some kind of big cannabis legislation passed. Um, but that may or may not be the case. I mean, public opinion is shifting. More and more Republicans are uh, coming on board. It was kind of, you know, back in 2020 when you saw South Dakota and Mississippi and Montana uh, sort of pass these, these legalization initiatives or the medical, in the case of Mississippi, two of them were then thrown out by the courts in those states. Um, but these are red states that passed easily, uh, you know, major cannabis reforms. And, you know, I thought it might send a signal uh, to some, you know, politicians on the right that maybe this is an issue that we need to start, you know, incorporating a little bit more into our platforms. This isn't something that's a third rail for our voters at all. Um, you didn't really see as much of that uh, happen as I would have liked. Um, and then seeing Arkansas and both the Dakotas, you know, fail to pass their initiatives this time around, you're not going to get uh, that boost, unfortunately. Um, if anything, it kind of makes the opposite argument. Although I think the reasons that they didn't pass in those states are much more complex than yes or no on, on legalization. Um, Congress um, Congress is not where I, I think a lot of the movement is going to happen over the next two years. I think we're going to be looking at the states. Uh, it is not. Uh, if you look at that, that's, the speaker vote made me want to smoke. Yeah, like, okay, yeah, they, they can't even, yeah, they're not going to sort out the speaker of the house. Let's see how they sort out, you know, cannabis. Um, I, I'm really intrigued by, you know, President Biden's um, review of the schedule status of, of cannabis. That was a uh, sort of largely unnoticed thing in a lot of outside of the cannabis community that wasn't in the headlines uh, that you saw about that. It was, oh, Biden pardons X number of, of people. Um, but the really interesting thing in all of that for me, uh, other than the, you know, encouraging governors to do the same, was this review being initiated by, by the president uh, to, you know, look at the schedule status uh, of cannabis. So maybe something will happen there. I don't know. Uh, maybe they'll wait until October of 2024 to <laughs> announce, make another big announcement. But um, I think the states are where things are going to be really interesting. Yeah. The next two years. We're going to see the, the real policy uh, battle shaken out. Um, not that you should ever discount Congress. Um, no, because- you can't. You can't. But I, I think you're right. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. And I I really think that it's it's a good thing and it's really exciting that cannabis policy is really it's really engaging people and getting people understanding how things are working. It's it's not like or back in the day when they used to have the um schoolhouse rock and they would explain, you know, the what a bill is and how it becomes a law. It's right. like Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's an opportunity, it's a teachable moment. Yeah, it really is. Um most people, you know have only a vague understanding of how the sausage is made. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, the more people that we can introduce to the intricacies of the legislative process to uh, through cannabis, the better. I mean, that's, that's a lot of what we're trying to do here. Absolutely. Yeah. It's when we, when we pass legalization here in the next day, people start showing up at the dispensaries expecting to get in and being very angry. It was like, (laughs) it was like, okay, let's break this down for you. 
It gets passed. And then we create the foundation of the program. Oh. So give it a year. <laughs> yeah. What happens after is, is you know, as, as important as what, you know, the legalization bills passing themselves. Because, you know, you look at a state like California, I mean, you have a window after the initiative passes where you're going to sort everything out. And it's really important to pay attention to that window because it might be 10 years before the legislature wants to really take a look at any of these things again, start to take the microscope and say what really worked here, what didn't, and then earnestly try to like fix uh, the problems. You have that political capital, you've got that momentum uh, in those six months, that first year legislative session after uh, legalization passes. And so, you know, if you're in Maryland right now, if you're in Missouri, uh, you're not taking your foot off the gas right now. This is the time to really be paying attention um, to things at the state legislative level, because this is where the nitty gritty details are going to get sorted out. Yep. Um, not, not the time to, to look away. And it's an important time to get your voice heard. And for those of you out there who are listening, who are wondering, you know, how to lobby and do things like that, there are organizations that have official lobby days where they do lobby training and they'll even help you with the appointments to go see your representatives. Um, have you have you done any of those? You know, I got a funny story actually about sort of the way that cannabis has kind of changed. My first lobby day that I did was with Students for Sensible Drug Policy in 2008, during the 2008 conference. Um, myself and a number of other students from LSU, uh, Louisiana State University, and then another uh, college in, in Louisiana. And we went to lobby um, the office of Senator David Vitter, no longer Senator, uh, former Senator David Vitter. Uh, we went there and uh, we were met by a staffer and he listened very patiently as we explained to him. We, we, we kept it, you know, we wanted to keep it, our expectations low, so it was medical cannabis. We weren't talking about legalization, we're talking about medical cannabis. It was 2008, talking to Louisiana, Congressperson and gave our pitch and he sat there very intently and uh, he listened and he said, mm -hmm, okay. And when we were done, you know, I thought maybe we're reaching this guy. He says, uh, yeah, kids come with me. You, you seem like some, some young men who really care about your community, really invested. Have you all considered, uh, and then gives us some brochures, joining the U.S. military? Uh, <laughs> and then he, <laughs> goes, oh, the Navy, the, the, you know, the, the Air Force, uh, giving us all the little Coast Guard brochures and things. And we were just like, what the hell? Like we thought, you know, we thought we were getting some kind of thing. This guy was just shutting up for waiting to, <laughs> to give us the, the pitch on the military. He's like, okay. Um, and that's how seriously we were taken. Uh, you know, I, I don't think even if you were dealing with a senator from Louisiana now, I don't think you'd be dismissed uh, like that mm -hmm. uh, today. I don't, I don't think at all. I think you, that would be taken, you'd, you'd probably be politely declined, politely told no, but it, it would be, it would not be, you know, shrugged off in that kind of uh, really disrespectful way, frankly. Um, yeah, but nonetheless, lobby you... days are great. I don't want to talk to people about lobby days. <laughs> do do <laughs> the... try to give lobby days a bad rap. <laughs> 2008 Louisiana, lots of great organizations. I did it in New York for my New York congressperson in 2012. And totally different experience. Um, and yeah, lots of organizations um, do those. SSDP, I believe, is still doing them for the students. Americans for uh, Safe Access does it too. Yeah, NCIA, I know, has their lobby day. Yeah, uh, as well. Uh, normal, I'm sure, uh, does some things. Uh, there's a lot of different organizations um, involved in that. But not everybody can get up to, to D.C., but, you know, state governments, much more accessible. City council meetings, oh, man, you know, the most vocal people in every community are sitting there in a city. You can have so much power in a city council meeting just by being, you know, a half dozen people who show up and, and make noise about the exact same issue uh, every single time. You can really, really disproportionate amount of influence. I mean, local elections are where really, I mean, not that all elections don't matter, but local elections are where you really, your vote really matters uh, the most. Um, and, uh, you know, it, all kinds of cannabis issues are coming up uh, all the time. You can get, you know, lowest enforcement priority uh, initiatives passed. You can get decrim passed. Um, there's a lot of contested spaces at, at, the, at the local level when it comes to cannabis. It's, it's really important. And even if, you know, even if we were at a time where like people were getting poo-pooed, it's like the more voices they hear, they may not take the first voices as seriously, but as it starts to go and they start to realize it's an issue, it's got to start somewhere. So, Absolutely. you know, it's like you're saying with your, with your less than satisfying lobby day experience, it paved the way for other people to have fruitful conversations, which is super important. And for people who want to get involved with what you do or reach out or follow what's going on with Headcount or the Cannabis Voter Project, what are the best ways for them to do that? Yeah, so we have our website, cannabisvoter.info. And I should have plugged this earlier because I always 
It's important to I was going to ask you. Don't worry. www.cannabisvoter.info. We track where every single member of Congress stands on seven different cannabis issues. So you can find out if they support banking. You can find out if they support medical cannabis. You can find out if they support, uh, you know, social equity provisions, expungement, federal legalization. We track seven different issues based on their voting records, their public statements, their campaign uh, materials, things like that. Um, And you can also go very easily make your voice heard. Use our little tools there to automatically reach out to your state and federal legislators, um, your governors, and you can can register to vote. You can look up uh, your voter registration status. You know, uh, remind everybody, everybody, you know, if you've moved in the last couple of years, you might need to re-register to vote. Every time you move, it's not, are you registered to vote? It's, are you registered to vote at your current address? So that's www.cannabisvoter.info. Uh, and then we have another website, Cannabis in Common. This was a kind of separate campaign uh, that we launched. You can go to cannabisincommon.org. This is a federal um, advocacy sort of campaign, um, specifically around um, stuff that was happening at the federal level. Uh, we put out some really great materials with Seth Rogen, Sarah Silverman, uh, Pusha T, uh, when we launched this campaign. It's been a really cool one. So that one's more of an advocacy thing. If you want to go reach out uh, to Congress specifically, you can check out cannabisincommon.org. But otherwise, all of our resources uh, cannabisvoter.info, the Cannabis Voter Project. Oh, that's cool that you were able to work with Seth and Sarah. They've both been really great about getting their voices heard and getting out there. It's it's really important that we have people who are in entertainment and other visible areas to to talk about it, especially to normalize it and get people to know, hey, it's not just me. I don't just feel this way. Other people do too. I'm really, really happy that we talked today, and I'm I'm looking forward to having more conversations with you. I just think what you're doing is incredibly important, not just about cannabis, but civic engagement is such a huge thing. In this day and age, a lot of people get really frustrated and feel like they don't have a voice, that it doesn't matter. So I really appreciate that you and your organization exist to remind people that they do. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, those kind words. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for, for having me on here. I love the podcast. And uh, yeah, look forward to our conversations in the future. Thank you. Until next time. And everyone remember, Planted is twice a month. And if you like listening, please give us a review, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care.